Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we are going to be continuing this series, like I mentioned, on the Sermon on the Mount. And we began this series a few weeks ago, this message that Jesus preached fairly early on in his ministry. And in that message, Jesus begins by talking about blessing and happiness. And then he talks about the opportunity for followers of him to take their faith public. And then last week, Jesus talked, we saw that Jesus began to talk about his relationship to the Old Testament law and basically talking about how the standards of God are deeper than we ever even knew they were. And we see this in a number of places. We saw this in verse 19. Uh, Jesus talked about how we have this temptation to relax the standards of God to something that we can attain. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, that's the temptation that you and I have. But Jesus said that we are not to relax the standards of God, but we are to remember that In order to be saved, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We saw that in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's because the standard of God is actually God himself. We see that in verse 48 when Jesus concludes this section of the sermon by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we kind of set the context for this section last week. And today we're going to talk more about verses 17 through 48, specifically some examples that Jesus gave to illustrate how his standard is deeper than we thought. But before we do that, I want to just uh, make a comment for us about something in our world that maybe we understand, and that is tarnished silver. How many of you have ever seen tarnished silver or know what I'm talking about when I mention that? Silver is this beautiful uh, jewel, right? But when it's exposed to the elements of this world, it can become discolored and covered with this tarnish. And it has to be polished at times so that we can see the beauty that lies underneath it. Well, I think in a very similar way, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount reminds us that God's law is beautiful. It's precious. It's like silver. But as God's standards have been given to us and have been in the world for a number of years and have been exposed to humanity and been exposed to even our religion, what happens is God's law had been tarnished. And so when we look at what was being taught concerning God's law in the first century, it was something other than what God had originally intended. Its original beauty had been obscured. And so Jesus is challenging not the beauty of God's law, not the depth of his standard, but he was challenging what was being taught or believed regarding that standard. And we see that in the verses that we're getting ready to look at in just a moment, where Jesus uses this familiar refrain, where he will say again and again, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you have heard it said. Now, what's interesting is when Jesus uses that phrase, he is talking about what is being taught, not what was written. When Jesus quotes the Old Testament throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he does not say, you have heard it said. He says, you have seen it written. So when Jesus here uses the phrase, you have heard it said, he is not talking about what was written, the original beauty, the silver of God's righteousness, 
but he's talking about what had been said about that. He was talking about the tarnish of the world and religion on God's perfect standard. And Jesus wants to polish that standard for us so that we see it in its original brilliance. And that's what we see happening in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. What's fascinating to me, too, is that sometimes we think that perversion of God's law is a contemporary phenomenon. In other words, every generation before us got it right, and we got it wrong. But what's interesting is Jesus says that you have heard it said from those of old. In other words, what was being taught was not new to the first century. It had been codified in the traditions that had been passed on to them. And so Jesus is challenging something that was old, but something that was wrong. Charles Spurgeon says this about this passage. He says, better the whole truth newly stated than an old, fa- than an old falsehood in ancient language. And Jesus is not going to allow us, regardless of how pretty it was said, to reduce or to relax his standards to something that we can attain in our own power. He wants us to understand how deep God's righteousness really is. And we see that in the verses we're going to look at today. Today, we're going to continue our study of chapter 5, verses 17 through 48 by looking at three different sections of it from verses 21 down through verse 26, verses 27 down through verse 30, and then verses 33 down through verse 37. We're going to read those verses and then we'll unpack them a little bit. Know that we're not skipping the other verses in this section. We'll come back to them in a couple of weeks. But I want to first read for us the deep standard of God regarding three things, murder, adultery, and lying. Verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put to prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny." You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, in these verses, Jesus is demonstrating for us, again, the deep standard of God. 
And he, he does so in three areas, three commandments that we are familiar with that reveal to us God's righteous standard. And, and one of those is in the area of murder, a second in the area of adultery, and the third in the area of lying. The first one we see that he mentions is in the area of murder. And we see this in verses 21 through 26. And really, he's asking this question, who is guilty of murder? Now, when I ask that question in this room, many of us are going, wow, I'm glad you started with that one because I think I can pass that test. And I think as Jesus begins this definition of the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins to reveal the deep standards of God, that people begin to relax and breathe a deep sigh of relief when he begins with that one as well, because they think, that's one that I can do. That's one that I haven't committed. And yet, as Jesus talks, he reveals to us that the standard is deeper than we think. Because though we might want to say that murder is about not killing someone in anger, Jesus goes so far as to say that even anger towards another makes us guilty of murder. He doesn't say that anger puts us on the path to murder. He says that if we are angry with another, we have committed murder in our heart. Look at what it says in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anger is not on the path to murder. Anger is murder according to the deep standard of God. Now, you might want to object to this and say, well, what about some kind of a righteous anger? Isn't there a righteous anger? And the answer to that is, of course there is. God himself is angry. When Jesus clears the temple because they were making a profit inside of God's house, uh, he does so not with a smile on his face. Uh, there's some anger that he has, a righteous anger. When, when God offers a pronouncement against Israel when they build a golden calf after he leads them out of the exodus from, from Egypt, uh, there's anger that the Lord has in that moment. There is such a thing as a righteous anger. But what Jesus is talking about when he describes this deep standard is this anger where we dismiss the value of another, where, where they get in our way, and we harbor some kind of ill will towards another person who's created in the image of God who is around us. Not a righteous anger against sin, but a dismissal of someone else, and an anger, a vengeance that we have towards them. And it's something that happens on the interior of our lives. Now, what's interesting, Jesus says that when that anger begins to brew, we are not only guilty of murder, but we typically will grab our first weapon in the attack against another. And that weapon is not found in a holster and it's not found in some kind of a, a leather case where a knife is held. But the, the weapon of choice that we have is actually found behind our teeth. It's in the words that we say. Jesus says the anger inside of us typically will come out first in the words that we use against another. The very first thing he says in verse 22 is that we, are, we will insult our brother. Now, if you've got a, a different translation, this is the ESV that I'm reading from, it might say the word raka. They may, Bible say raka, and whoever says to his brother raka. And, you know, some of you are going, great, I've never said raka to anybody, I'm good. Um, but the idea of raka was, in the original language, it was, it was an insult that said that somebody was empty-headed. They were stupid. They were a bonehead. That's the idea. There's nothing in there. It's hollow. It says that anybody who is angry and devalues somebody to the point that they just call them a name like that has committed murder. That's what Jesus said. The standard is deeper than we thought. He, he goes on, and not only does it come out and say that they're stupid, but also... He says in the end of verse 22, whoever says, you fool, it's talking not so much about 
what they, they know or their thoughts or how smart they are, but it's talking about the character of their heart. It's the equivalent of calling them a scoundrel, judging the intents and the motives of another's heart. Jesus says that the standard is deeper than we thought. Murder is committed not just with a gun or a knife. Murder is committed not just by beating someone with our fists. Murder is committed when we have anger towards another in the interior of our life. Murder is committed when we open our mouths and we say these things in their direction. And as Jesus begins to talk about this and the standard of God is revealed as deep as it is, it's a challenge, isn't it? If the original audience thought, I can say that I never murdered somebody as Jesus describes it, how innocent are they and how innocent are we? John Stott says this about this section. He says, anger and insult are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. Our thoughts, looks, and words all indicate that as we sometimes dare to say, we wish that they were dead. We wish harm upon them in some way. Friends, Jesus reveals that murder, the standard, is deeper than we thought. Not only that, but he also wants us to know that the consequence is more severe than we think. You know, sometimes when we, we hear, okay, yes, we're not supposed to be angry that way, but isn't that some kind of a theological misdemeanor, that if God somehow would notice this in our lives and, and pull us over, that he would just write us a ticket or give us a warning? He certainly wouldn't gather us up and take us into theological jail. He wouldn't certainly damn us to the fire of hell for violation of this kind of anger. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says the consequence is deeper than we thought for breaking this. He, he says at the end of verse 22, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The word there is Gehenna, it's talking about this valley that was just below Jerusalem where the trash of Jerusalem burned perpetually. It was a picture of the eternal judgment of God that came against sin. Friends, anger on the inside, tearing down and not building up with our words is no theological misdemeanor. It's something that is, that is worthy of, of hell. The standard is deeper than we think. The consequence is more severe than we think. The third thing that we see is that our reaction to this should be stronger than we think. And that makes sense, right? If this kind of behavior leads to that kind of consequence, then we should do whatever we can to, to stay away from it. And that's what Jesus does in verse 25 and 26. He gives two examples of what it looks like to deal with this anger. The first one is of somebody that is going to worship. And their worship is not more important than reconciling with their brother. They're to leave their offering and they're to go and they're to reconcile with their brother. They're to not let their anger fester. They're to be aggressive in their attempts to extinguish their anger by reconciling with a friend. Next one, he uses the example of somebody going to, 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 uh, to court. And he says, even on the way to court, you're not too late, but settle the dispute Bring peace. Be a peacemaker, Jesus says. Extinguish our anger. Don't harbor it. Be aggressive with it. And here's the question. Are we aggressive with our anger? The answer to that is yes. We are passive aggressive with our anger. Jesus wants us to extinguish it, but what do we do? We harbor it. We create a little spot in our soul and we give the cold shoulder. We keep it around. Why do we do that? Jesus says that the standard regarding murder is deeper. It involves anger. It involves our words. And 
because of the judgment that is there, we're to react strongly and move away from it. Question again, who is guilty of murder? Where do we fall? The next one he mentions is the area of adultery. He moves into talking about adultery. And again, as he talks about this, he's really asking the question, who is guilty of adultery? And there might be some that go, okay, I may be a murderer, but I'm certainly not an adulterer. And then Jesus continues to talk, and he says, well, let me show you how deep this standard really is. As you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. In other words, you've thought if you were married, you're not to have a sexual relationship with somebody who's not your spouse. And yet Jesus takes it and reveals the depth of that statement. He says in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The standard is deeper than we thought. It's not just in the external actions, but it happens on the interior of our lives. Those who linger on lust have become adulterers, according to Jesus, as he polishes God's law to reveal its beautiful brilliance to us. Now, this is especially challenging because in this room, who among us can say that this has never happened? Who among us has never had a lustful thought for someone who is not your spouse? In the original audience, they would have, would have wanted to look away, no eye contact in this part of the sermon because it was so convicting. And the same thing is true of us as we read it, if this is the case. We live in a world that does everything it can to inspire lust, pornography, and and entertainment options, and even just the world in which we live, everything around us says it's okay to lean into this. This is, this is the way that life is intended. Jesus says that when lust happens, even on the interior of our lives, it is violating God's deep standard of holiness. The standard is deeper than we think. Not only that, but the consequence is more severe than we think. Again, what does Jesus say about those who have violated this standard? He says in, in verse 29, he says, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Again, this is no misdemeanor. But lust on the interior of our lives makes us guilty of adultery, which puts us under the condemnation of God, which leads to eternal punishment. That's what Jesus says. The standard is deeper than we thought. The consequence is more severe than we thought. And because of that, our reaction should be stronger than we think. What does Jesus say? He says, if you are finding something in your body that is leading you to sin, you should gouge it out or cut it off. Now, that's intense. And, you know, when, when I say that, you're going, is that really what it means? And I would say that it doesn't exactly mean that, to which you can all breathe a deep sigh of relief. But what Jesus is calling us to is to take swift and aggressive response to things that lead us to sin. By calling us to, to gouge out our eye if it leads us to sin, he basically is saying, be blind to the things that tempt you to sin. If you are, are tempted to sin through pornography that you go to on the internet, or if you are tempted to sin based on a subscription to a, a television channel that brings things into your home that cause you to be tempted to lust, then get those things out of your life. Put filters on your internet. Don't cancel the subscription. Become blind to those things. Cutting off the hand is, is the idea of, of creating it 
make it difficult for you to be able to actually do anything about certain situations. If there is a, a relationship that is angling towards the inappropriate, if there's a relationship that is heading towards contributing you to be a lustful person, then build in parameters to keep that out of your life. Don't go on that lunch. Don't go on that trip. Jesus wants us to be aggressive with these activities in our life. Take action to keep them away. The standard is deeper than we think. The consequence is more severe than we think. Our reaction should be stronger than we think. Are we guilty of adultery as well? The third one that he gets to is the issue of lying. Now, this one is a little harder to see maybe for us in our English translation and in our 21st century life, but Jesus is really talking about lying from verses 33 through verse 37. It's, it's couched here in the context of oaths. And the standard that they were familiar with was found here. It says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Here was what they thought. They thought, you know what? If we swear to God, then whatever we say after that must be truthful. We must live into it. We must do it. But everything else is kind of fair game. It could be full of some truth and some error. And as a matter of fact, they, they'd gotten really cute in this game of how they swore and that they would swear to God and that, that would, that would, those things would have to be truthful. But you know what? If they swore to their head, then maybe it was part true and part not true. If they swore to the city of Jerusalem, it was part true and not true. If they swore to the heavens or swore to something on the earth, that those things might be true or might not be true. And, and Jesus, aware of all of this, goes, what are you doing the standard is not that you would only be truthful at the end of a formula, but the standard is that we would be truthful all the time in every one of our conversations so that we do not need to clarify that it is by this standard or, or, or that standard, but every time we open our mouths that we would be speaking truth. I mean, listen, with that context, listen to what he says. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, or your no, no. It's the idea of just when we open our mouths, be truthful. That's, that's, that's the standard. It's, it's not be truthful when it's convenient. It's be truthful all the time. And this is challenging for us, right? We live in a world that spends everything. We'll take whatever the, the reality is and we'll spend it to make ourselves look good. Jesus says that's not the standard. Jesus says don't just be truthful when you take the stand and put your hand on the Bible, but be truthful all the time. Incidentally, I don't think this passage would forbid us from putting our hand on a Bible and giving an oath because to fail to do that would be almost in contradiction of the passage. The heart of the passage is that we would be truthful people, and so we lean into that in a fallen world. We'd be willing to, to do that in a court of law, but the idea is that that's not the only time that we speak truth. We're called to speak truth at all the time. Uh, the standard is deeper than we thought, and again, the consequence is more severe than we think. This is no misdemeanor. He calls it evil at the end of verse 37 when we fail to tell the truth. And because of that, our reaction should be stronger than we think. We should be truthful at all times, not just some of the time, not just after a certain formula, but all the time we are called to be truthful. 
Again, the question is, who is guilty of lying? Now, aren't you encouraged today? I mean, in just a few minutes, I've reminded us that we are murderers, adulterers, and liars. Go and be blessed and be filled. Happy Mother's Day. I I know that some of you are sitting there today going, what in the world are you doing? Why are you talking about this on Mother's Day? Can't we talk about something happier? I mean, puppy dogs and sunshine or something? I mean, tell a cute story. Come on, Mark. Land strong. I brought my in-laws today. I know what you're thinking, right? But but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jesus, as he, he does this, And as he walks through this message, uh, it's very intentional in the Sermon on the Mount to reveal to each of us our great need. And he somewhat leaves them hanging in the midst of their need. But here's the thing. We live today 2,000 years after that message was preached. And because of that, we know the greater context. And the need that is generated in the Sermon on the Mount, we know the answer for. And so not only do we ask ourselves, are we guilty of these things, and say yes and leave discouraged, but as followers of Christ, friends, let's gather today and ask the really important question, who can save us? Who can save us? If we are guilty of being murderers, adulterers, and liars, and if the consequences that follow those things are so severe, then what hope do we have? Well, what, what does our world tell us? Our world tells us that our hope is to relax the standards of God. That's what Jesus said we are not to do. Remember that back in 519? That's, that's what the world wants to do. Let's relax the standard of God and tell us it's not as bad as we think. No, we're not to do that. We're to remember that God is the standard and he is perfect. So that means that as we reflect on this passage, don't let it miss you that we need to sit for a moment under the knowledge that we are worthy of hell, that our sin is real, not just the sin that those around us see, but the sin that we know in our hearts, and the consequence for that sin is severe. And so with that in mind, let's just walk through our, our, our similar pattern that we've seen. We talk about our salvation. The standard is deeper than we think. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We've, we've detailed three areas this morning. But how many more areas of our life are there? I mean, we just did three, and we've made ourselves murderers, adulterers, and liars. Pick the topic. Go deep enough, and we are all sinful people. When we realize the standard of God and we realize his perfection, we realize our incredible, incredible, ongoing need. We are sinful and broken people. Jesus knew when he preached this message, he was preaching it to murderers, adulterers, and liars. And friends, I know as I stand up today that I'm preaching this message to murderers, adulterers, and liars, me at the top of that list. We gather together today. We need to remember that the standard is deeper than us. If you have never come to grips with that, know this, the standard is deep and you have broken it. And that's not you alone, that's every one of us in this room. And not only that, but the consequence is deeper than we thought. The consequence is is more severe. You know, we, we may want to think that what we have done is a misdemeanor, that what other people have done is a capital offense. But the reality is we can't get past it in the Sermon on the Mount that what we have done is a capital offense as well. Hell is the payoff for our activity and our actions. 
And so we find ourselves on the business end of the wrath of God, and that is not a comfortable place to be. The consequence is more severe than we think. Friends, think about this. Why is it that Jesus came to die? Why is it that we talk about the cross and the crucifixion, and why does that matter? It's because the consequence of your sin and mine is more severe than we think. If we just needed to get a little better, Jesus could have come and just been the next Tony Robbins. Just give us a good motivational talk. But we need something more than that. We needed a total cleansing and a restoration. We needed the wrath of God towards us to be satisfied, and Jesus has provided that when he died on the cross. Our consequence of sin is so great, that's why Jesus went to the cross to absorb the wrath of God concerning our sin. And because of that, our response, our reaction, should be stronger than we think. See, if we have entered here thinking that our reaction or our response to the knowledge of our sin is just that we do a little better. I mean, friends, don't be discouraged. If, if, if you're convicted, you need to go and take some, some action out of this message and consistent with the passage. By all means, do that. But know this, it will never be enough. We do that, but we do that not so that God will accept us. We've already done enough sin in our past, not much less what's going to happen this afternoon or this week or this year or the years ahead of our violation of God's law. We need someone to die in our place. Our reaction needs to be to turn to Christ Peter said at the end of his message in Acts chapter 2 that those who were convicted by this message were to repent and be baptized. They were to turn from their past ways, turn from their self-reliance, and run to Christ and find their identity in him. And if you are here today and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, but you are convicted by your sin, know that there is hope available, not someday, but today, by turning to Christ and running to him and finding your identity in him and seeing his death on the cross as paying the full penalty for your sin so that the hell of fire he might absorb and extinguish so that you might live with God forever. That's the hope of the gospel. Inside of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets us lost so that we might be found in him. Every one of us in this room needs to be reminded of that message. And for some, I pray that today would be the day that you trust Christ for the first time, that you don't head into another summer clinging to your own good works as your hope for eternity, but recognizing the deep standard of God, you trust Christ to make the payment that you can't afford. Father God, we are thankful for the opportunity to worship today, thankful for your word, and so, so thankful for Jesus Christ, who reveals to us, he polishes that beautiful standard of the word so that we would understand just how far we fall short. And Father, not only does he reveal to us our need, but he also made the payment so that we might be forgiven. And I pray for every one of us in this room who has known that blessed truth, that we would lean into Christ and we would trust him today. And Father, I pray for anyone who is here who has never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would go no more minutes in their own power and strength. But today they would trust in Jesus. They would 
turn from their former life and lean into him and see his provision and his identity become our hope and our righteousness. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name.